kneel before Zor. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to a very special vintage video Patreon pick where our patrons at the $100 tier are invited to request any pre-80s title they'd like for a custom review from the Vintage Video team, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today, Louis Letizia has asked us to review The Wiz, released October 24th, 1978. It was written by Joel Schumacher, based on a novel by William F. Brown, adapted from L. Frank Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, directed by Sidney Lumet, and released by Universal Pictures. In 1900, L. Frank Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz was published, the first in a series of 14 novels. They all live in the public domain now, but weirdly, adaptations rarely stray beyond the first book. A notable exception is 1985's Return to Oz, which makes use of several characters, Princess Ozma, Mombi, Jack Pumpkinhead, Belina the Hen, and TikTok, which I didn't realize until now are all original bomb characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. movie is great. It's really wonderful. <laughs> and it makes re- me wish there were more of them. I know. Yeah. I just rewatched it with the kids, and I'm like, this movie 100% holds up. Yeah. yeah. But reading through the additional stories in brief, I'd say there's more than enough fascinating characters to populate a third or fourth installment of the series. There's like, there's a patchwork girl that's like, kind of feels like Sally from... Mm-hmm. Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas and and there's all these other really fun sounding characters and there's more mechanical people too it's not just Tin Man and TikTok there's there's yeah. other mechanical people yeah. yeah and then there's all kinds of other lands and and the you know, the and the deadly desert is among like the locations right. in in Oz yeah. the first story was adapted to film many times on the way to MGM's celebrated 1939 iteration The Wizard of Oz starring Judy Garland since then there have been many more remakes and sequels like Return to Oz Sam Raimi's Oz the Great and Powerful, and some fascinating versions I'd never heard of, like The Wizard of Mars, a low-budget sci-fi from 1965, Journey Back to Oz, an animated version featuring the voice of Liza Minnelli as Dorothy, an anime adaptation produced by Toho Studios, and of course, a version featuring the random insertion of Tom and Jerry into the story, though I'm sorry I didn't have time to find that one for this go-around. There's also the Tin Man series. Oh, I don't uh, know that. Was, I think it was a, it was a mini-series. Oh, uh, yeah, with yeah. Zoe Deschanel yeah, as Dorothy, they just called her DG, which I think is a very cumbersome Dorothy Gale. Yeah, but I think DG is a very cumbersome like nickname. Yeah, it's not like DJ where it kind of flows. Yeah, DG. In fact, only a couple years before today's film, another original musical adaptation was released in Australia called Twentieth Century Oz, bringing new meaning to Ozploitation. Author playwright William F. Brown was commissioned to adapt Frank L. Baum's novel into African-American street slang, and together with music from Charlie Smalls, the story was adapted into a Broadway play, which opened in January of 1975 and was a fast hit, going on to win seven of its eight Tony nominations, including Best Costume Design, Choreography, Direction, Featured Actress for Dee Dee Bridgewater as Glinda the Good Witch, Featured Actor for Ted Ross as the Cowardly Lion, original score, and, of course, best musical of the year. The rights to adapt the musical were snapped up by Barry Gordy's Motown Productions, the film arm of his Motown Records label, with the intention of retaining the Broadway production Dorothy, Stephanie Mills. Unfortunately for her, 
Diana Ross learned of the developing project and petitioned hard with long-term boyfriend Barry Gordy for the part, but he shut her down immediately because the character in the musical was less than half her age. Ross went over Gordy's head to the film's executive producer Rob Cohen at Universal, who was keener to cast the Supremes and solo artist superstar in the film and made arrangements to increase the age of the character to 24 in the story to closer accommodate the 33-year-old actress. Hmm. I mean, I, it doesn't bother me that she's older in this adaptation. It's weird, though, because there's never been a version of Dorothy where she's not a teenager. And she does not look like a teenager. But they they address it by calling yeah. her 24 and treating her like a spinster when she's actually 33. Which well, is I don't think they treat her like a spinster. I feel like they treat her like somebody who should have already been going out on her own and has just stuck to home. Yeah. In the book, Dorothy is around 10, but in the 39 film, Dorothy is 12, being played by a 16-year-old Judy Garland. The director at the time, John Badham, was dismayed with the story and casting decisions and stepped away from the project, at which point he was replaced by Sidney Lumet, famous at the time for his efficiency within a budget. 20th Century Fox, who had funded the Broadway production, passed on their option to distribute the film, which landed at Universal with a massive budget to reflect the studio's excitement about the film's potential, eventually costing a whopping $24 million. Wow. Unfortunately, it would only make about 13 back. Oh, my goodness. 13 million, not $13. Joel Schumacher adapted the musical into a screenplay and, for whatever reason, infused the story with elements of the EST, Earhart Seminars Training Movement, which he was very involved with at the time, and it even gets a mention in his directorial debut, The Incredible Shrinking Woman, earlier this season. We took him to their first EST seminar. What does that really mean, though? It's just one of those, like, weekend retreats that teaches you self-actualization nonsense. Okay, I was just trying to figure out how that manifested itself in this script. Uh, It's it's all the stuff about, like, you had it inside of you all along. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think that was... It's an older philosophy than this Est thing, but it was a, a very trendy cult weekend retreat thing at the time. Okay. Once Diana Ross was officially attached, she was able to bring on fellow Motown star Michael Jackson. Director Lumet had wanted Jimmy Walker from Good Times for the Scarecrow, but when he turned the part down, Jackson was brought in to meet about it. Jackson was only 19 at the time and best known for his work with the Jackson 5. His father, Joe Jackson, worried Michael stepping out on his own would bring an end to the supergroup and he was right. But for the first time in his career, Michael was calling his own shots. Composer Quincy Jones wasn't sold on Jackson as the right choice until producer Cohen arranged a meeting of the two, which kicked off a lifelong professional partnership. Soon after the film's release, the two would collaborate on Jackson's Off the Wall album on the way to Thriller and Bad for the most successful period of Jackson's career. There was no better choice than Ted Ross to return from the Broadway show as the Cowardly Lion. Eartha Kitt was the first choice for Eveline, but eventually Mabel King was asked to reprise the role from Broadway as well. Yeah, honestly, I was thinking, where is she? Yeah. Why is she not in this movie? Yeah, Eartha Kitt would be wonderful. For some reason, Richard Pryor was brought on to take over the titular role, despite not having any singing experience, and the Wizard's songs were dropped from the soundtrack. But he's supposed to have a couple songs in the movie. Oh, gosh. And instead, Richard Pryor does nothing. To be fair, this movie didn't really need to be longer, which if he had a couple of songs would have been even longer <laughs> yeah but then call the movie dorothy if the whiz isn't going to do anything yeah I, and you know despite not having singing experience i mean i don't mind when people who can't really sing 
just do a couple of voice lessons and then do their best. Right. Like yeah. My, Michael Caine in the Muppets Christmas Carol never sang before in a movie ever. Yeah. And, or since I think. Yeah. And 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 he does great. He's not the best ever, but he's he's like that's perfectly fine. But it also works with characters who are very charactery, right? So like you know when you have a distinct voice and you know character that you're playing, yeah. you don't have to necessarily be a good singer in these situations, right? Like when you have, uh, not that he's a bad singer, but John C. Riley doing like Mr. Cellophane yeah. in Chicago, where it's like, I like the sound of his voice. So him singing that song is a fun flavor to it. And even if Pryor had just done like a spoken word version, like not really saying, but just like spoke the lyrics yeah. to more of a beat. Shatner it. Yeah. Well, maybe not like that, but but just not even saying, just speak the words in a in a cadence with the song i would have i would have accepted that too yeah speak friend and enter i just wanted richard Pryor to do something in this movie yeah to be fair he hasn't been doing anything for most of what we've covered so far no no no. but well yes that but uh, the wizard is honestly not a very important person in the wizard of oz at least uh, i will say from the original movie that's true even in the 39 version it's called the wizard of oz and the wizard is in two scenes yeah he's not it's not it's not a critical character to the film honestly right Despite poor box office and a mediocre critical reception, it did manage four Oscar nominations for art direction, cinematography, costume design, and adaptation score, but all four stayed nominations. There were no wins. This is another situation where a permanent makeup category would have been nice to have, though, because all of Stan Winston's work here making everyone look like robots or lions or scarecrows looks pretty great. I really like it, except for this one creative decision with the scarecrow well yes and no i like it's the 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 aesthetic choices i think are fine the execution in hd does not look great really oh yeah i don't know i don't know if you were paying close attention to it but like it is like seams and wrinkles and lumps all over the place they are lumpy and Michael Jackson especially looks very strange as the scarecrow. Yeah. Like they gave him like a quadruple chin. I I I I don't understand what they were going for with Michael Jackson's makeup. Yeah. I I like the costumes a lot, but honestly the 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 makeup bothers me because it it kind of looks cheap. I think the tin man looks great though. Tin man, I'm fine with the tin man. I'm fine with like even fine with the cowardly line. But Michael Jackson, I, I think I because I just wanted to see him. Right, that's well, true. And and I don't see him in that makeup. And he was so cute at the time, and yeah. they made him look not cute in yeah. this movie. Because if you look, look at the original Scarecrow, it's just, it's just a yeah, guy. It's just Ray Bolger's face. Yeah. It's He's just, just like, wearing like a fake bag uh, collar. Yeah, it's like, I, I wanted that. I just wanted to see Michael Jackson, please. Yeah. The opening titles play out over a painting of a neighborhood on a brick wall. A woman in the sky is wearing a big blue dress and holding hands with a group of floating children. <laughs> Some of those children look very unhappy to be yeah. there. <laughs> oh, poor kids. Well, to be fair, half the children in the background here are actually just dolls strung up behind her. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The camera pans away from the painting to a snowy city street. Two women enter a building with arms overflowing with holiday shopping. We cut to hours later as a meal is nearing completion and they answer a knock at the door to invite some guests in. Later, the same apartment is crowded with people and they all excitedly watch out the windows as the last couple guests arrive carrying a baby. A party host, Dorothy, played by Diana Ross, leads the new mother down the hall. 
It seems like Dorothy is staying separate from the guests and not engaging in conversation. At first I thought she was like the help or something like she's just here to prepare the party but this isn't her family because she's being so weird awkward and distant from everyone but uh but no they're just her family she just doesn't know how to talk to people i guess as auntie m as played by Teresa merritt carries food to the table she begins singing the film's first song put your arms around the child like when you pumped your shin Then you know I love you now As I loved you then I was so excited to see her because I've literally never seen her in anything but Billy Madison. Yeah, I knew you'd be very excited (laughs) when she showed up. It's a fine piece of ass though too. (laughs) (laughs) Dorothy ducks back into the kitchen to avoid the song. As she sings, Auntie M steps into the coat room and finds two more guests making out. She scares them back to the table, and everyone applauds their late arrival. Hopefully they're a couple and not cousins. Yeah, I, I was just like, wait, what's happening here? <laughs> this is a family reunion. <laughs> you do not make out with family. <laughs> For part of the song, Auntie M sings directly to Dorothy with a hand under her chin, and Dorothy looks terrified and embarrassed and keeps casting her eyes downward to her food, but without eating it. She's eventually made uncomfortable enough to go hide in the kitchen again, where she removes a cake from the refrigerator and then sings a song about what an outsider she feels like. I don't even know the first thing about what they're feeling. The song, as it starts, is very reminiscent of Michael Jackson's work at the time. They even have similar voices. Even her speaking voice in the movie reminds me of Michael Jackson's voice all over the place. The song specifically reminded me a lot of Michael Jackson's Gone Too Soon, recorded as a memorial to Jackson's friend Ryan White, the Indiana teen who came to national attention after contracting HIV AIDS from a blood transfusion. Like a comet blazing across the evening sky Gone too soon Later that night, Auntie M turns off the television while Uncle Henry naps on the couch. As they clean the dishes together, Auntie M tries to convince Dorothy to take a job teaching high school students and quit her kindergarten position. It's more money, but Dorothy prefers the little kids. She wants Dorothy to get out more and explore new neighborhoods, but Dorothy's heard this lecture before and she's tired of it. Girl, do you know you're 24 years old and you've never been been south south of 125th Street? Well, you haven't! Diana Ross is about 33 during this shoot, and this line only brings unnecessary attention to the mismatch of ages. There's no reason the character, as written, couldn't have just been 33. If you're going to age the character up, just make the character 33, and then it makes more sense why you're pushing her to change her job. It's like, 24, she barely finished her teaching credentials. She just started as a kindergarten teacher. Give her a couple years. When Dorothy opens the door to take out the trash, Toto runs out into the snow. She finds him fairly quickly, but before they can get back inside, a giant snow tornado comes spinning down the street toward them. It picks them up and spins them around in the air, when suddenly, the camera is backing out of the tornado, spinning in the palm of a woman's hand. It's the woman from the painting that started the film, surrounded by children floating amongst the stars against a black night sky. And most of these children are actually children of the cast and crew of the film. This was a also really appropriate feeling as I watched it stuck in a Toronto airport as I watched howling winds blow in a storm that mm. delayed my flight. Yeah. <laughs> this is Glinda the Good Witch, played by Lena Horne, and she blows the tornado out of her hand and it completely dissipates. 
Dorothy and Toto fly through the air horizontally and crash through an enormous Oz emblem on their way to landing in a giant sawdust sandbox or whatever this is. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Although the seeing the the Z so prominent is like it's like oh boy this is like bringing up Ukraine conflicts stuff with the Russian army. I uh I read that uh, Lena Horne's uh, Sydney Lumet's mother-in-law. Or yeah, yeah, she was at the time. Yeah. Do you remember the last time we mentioned Lena Horne? No. Uh, I I have uh, a mention that I can think of during the the Oscar ceremony special. Uh, was there more recent than that? I I, um, I was making a very obscure reference to History of the World. Did where, she get mentioned in there? Yeah, Mel Brooks distracts Gregory Hines by going, "Look, Lena Horne." And he goes, "Lena." <laughs> <laughs> the silhouettes painted on the wall behind her come to life and peel themselves off the wall. They're all chirping and whooping and freaking Dorothy out. She's terrified until they explain that they are grateful to her. It's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. like it's very scary. When they first come out and there's just these weird silhouettes, they're like the Wheelers. Yeah, uh-huh. I was like, I, I, I'm very upset by this. Yeah, the whole movie has a. A very foreboding vibe. Well, and it, it's it's pretty scary for what it is. Yeah. Like, it's it's almost a little too scary for kids, but not scary enough for adults. Like, it's it, it just lives in a very weird yeah. uh, tone. Turns out, by crashing through the Oz emblem, she broke off a big chunk that landed on the Wicked Witch Evermean who had cursed them. When she died, their curse was lifted. In describing how evil she was, one of them refers to her as the Parks Department Commissioner. Which might be, like, literally she was the Parks Department Commissioner, or that's how evil she was. Uh-huh. The shooting location for this scene is the New York State Pavilion at Flushing Meadows, a long-abandoned World's Fair construction operating as this film's munchkin land. These munchkins played in the witch's park, and so she banned them to live as graffiti on the walls. Most of these munchkin characters seem to be dubbed over with children's voices, as opposed to the traditional other way around. A woman who seems to be the leader of these munchkins is led to Dorothy and thanks her. We'll come to know this character as Miss One. Innumerable blessings, countless felicitations, thank you beyond number and additional good stuff. Suddenly, the silver slippers on the dead witch disappear from her feet and reappear on Dorothy's. They are actually silver in the book because Lumet was adamant that nothing from the 39 film be carried over unless it was the same in the book. Miss One seems to run some kind of a numbers racket, and when Dorothy asks for directions to her home at 433 Prospect Place, the woman thinks she's giving her numbers to bet on, like that Maluch character from Fatso in season one. Well, I was uh, I was looking it up because I was trying to figure out what this meant. Yeah. But apparently prior to there being like state-run lottery things, yep. they had local uh, local folks who would you know essentially have people bet on the numbers, and they would use like closing financial statements from banks in order to essentially draw the numbers. So they would take like two different like closing statements and take like two numbers from one and one number from the other. And that was like the lotto winner for the day. Right. And it was just within a neighborhood. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I'm pretty sure it was illegal too. Oh, I'm sure it was. Yeah. It was just a gambling racket. The Munchkin leader describes herself as one of three surviving witches opposite Glinda and Eveline. She advises Dorothy to reach out to the Wiz for directions home. She sings a song describing the wizard to Dorothy, and this is probably my favorite song in the film, followed closely by the Scarecrow's You Can't Win right around the corner. Apparently, the wizard has mystical powers that allow him to grant wishes. To find this man, Dorothy is told to follow the yellow brick road, but unlike the 1939 Wizard of Oz, there is no yellow brick road visible here, and she'll have to find the start of it on her own. She tries to hail a big Toontown cab, 
but the light switches to off-duty and it pulls away and she realizes she is fully alone. All the munchkins have disappeared. Dorothy sings a song about how she must be imagining all this because she feels crazy here. Uh, everything about the Miss One sequence and the graffiti sequence, it all this very all very felt Broadway. Yes. Because um, the, the camera doesn't really move It a stays lot. very wide. Too. Yeah. Um, and so, and then when everyone disappears and, she, and her voice is echoing, it just seems like this, this whole, this whole sequence especially just felt like very, very play-like. And I was like, and at this point I was like, oh man, I hope the whole movie is not going to be like yeah. this. I, I don't know. I feel like it kind of is though. All, all the musical numbers go very wide and they feel like because Lumet had not directed a musical and did not after this, uh, it feels like he's trying to replicate the experience of the stage yeah. performance. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of imagine that he took a lot of um, choreography, which is obviously meant to fill a stage, You're right? Yeah. Uh, in order to just you know try to represent it accurately. But you know, I think really successful musicals understand that you're you're no longer on the stage yeah you, know, you, you need, need to you, make significant you changes. need to make some close-up choreography yeah. that changes yeah over the course of the song dorothy is transported to matte paintings in the style of the same demolished bronx neighborhoods we last saw in wolfen it's morning now and she finds a building surrounded in rubble and corn stalks complete with a scarecrow the scarecrow is being played by michael jackson and he's surrounded by four crows dressed and voiced in the same style as the ones from the end of disney's dumbo yeah i mean they're they're very very reminiscent of those but i think that they're both playing off of the same same stereotypes concept of yeah the same stereotypes and the same reference to like jim crow laws but they're even wearing like the same glasses and hat Mm -hmm. combo as the cartoon characters from that movie yeah it's it's kind of interesting because i mean it comes up later with some of the other characters that they're using a lot of what i would think is you know stereotypically racist uh references in some of these uh costume choices um and i did appreciate though that the makeup was actually like a beak connecting to a face instead of just wearing like a mask or something yeah but they look like giant noses yeah I, i i do really like the crow costumes and they have the um uh, so they have these gloves on that have the long, like, Feathers. feather-like yeah. fingers coming out of it. And the tails of their jackets wrap up like tail feathers. Right, yeah. Um, I think these are my favorite costumes in the film. Yeah. The Scarecrow asks the crows to help him down for what must be the thousandth time. And they remind him that he can't walk because he's too dumb. And he accepts this response. On his head, he's wearing an upside-down popcorn bucket. And his nose has a Reese's peanut butter cup wrapper on it. Despite their claims that he's too dumb to walk, he freely quotes the words of philosophers from whose books his stuffing has apparently been torn. He pulls slips of paper from his chest and reads them to the crows as they mock him. Especially apropos of my situation, i.e. stuck up on this here pole. Do not accept any situation, question, argue, and explore. Well, I, I mean, I think that that's a there. I mean, there's a ton, there's a ton of symbolism throughout this movie, and I think that this is one bit that's like, you know, if these are representative of you know Jim Crow laws, and they're essentially trying to tell Michael Jackson to, you know, you just have to accept yeah you your pla- you your placement be in life. Yeah. You know, this is just how it is. Yeah. The crows are annoyed to be lectured by this scarecrow and demand he recite their laws and sing their anthem, so he does. It's probably one of the best songs the film has to offer, and probably on account of being Michael Jackson's song, because I just love his voice, and it's a great song. You can't win, you can't make it, and then you can't get out of the game. People keep saying, 
The song was originally sung by henchmen to Dorothy in the Wicked Witch's sweatshop, but it was cut from the original musical and then thankfully resurrected for the film version. At the end of the song, Dorothy jumps out to end their cruel mockery. I'll help you down! What? You will? She shouts the birds away and helps him down, but it's really more of a Homer, are you still holding the can moment. Yeah. <laughs> because all he has to do is let go of the bars that he's holding on to. Once on the ground, the scarecrow falls on his face because his legs are atrophied from scarecrowing. I feel like this was another moment that felt very much just taken out of what you would have had to do on a stage production. Right. Whereas, you know, like in your film. You have to be able to separate from it very quickly. Right, you you have can't to, be chained to exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. Whereas in a film, I think you'd have more opportunity to be like, okay, let's untie his arms. Right. Eventually, he gets his balance, and Dorothy tells him that he shouldn't have believed the crows when they said he couldn't do it. If I only had a brain, I would have figured that out a long time ago. There you go with that negative thinking again. She thinks he's just being self-deprecating, but he explains that he truly has no brain, and he shows her the trash his head is stuffed with. She invites the scarecrow on her journey to the wizard to potentially ask for a brain. Indications are it would be very advantageous for me to join you. <laughs> and he talks like this a lot because right away the implication is already... He has a brain. He's very smart. He quotes all these philosophers. Yeah. And he can understand these complex concepts. So he's not a complete idiot, which I feel like in the 39 film, they don't bother to make the scarecrow seem super smart the whole time. They just give him one smart thing to say at the end when the wizard says, you were smart the whole time. And he's like, oh, yeah, math. And he's like (laughs) recites like the the Pythagorean theorem wrong yeah. or something like that. Yeah. That that's the only indication that we get that he's smart. But this movie right away with all of these characters as she's meeting them shows you this person says they don't have a heart, but they're very emotional. This person says they don't have courage, but they're very brave. And Well, it's the whole EST thing, right? <laughs> right. But I just I appreciated that they went to the effort of of showing rather than telling on all three of these characters yeah. and to to really harp on it the whole time that it's like it's crazy that you're accepting this person doesn't have a brain because of the way he talks and the way he thinks problems out. The Scarecrow helps her find the start of the Yellow Brick Road. As they begin following it, they launch into one of the better known songs for the film, Ease On Down the Road. Come on then, ease on down, ease on down the road. Come on, ease on down, ease on down the road. This duet actually got a single and charted around the time of the film's release, so it's probably the most familiar song for people who haven't seen the film. They dance along a yellow brick road over a bridge toward a skyline crowded with Chrysler buildings and wrapped in a roller coaster track. Is, isn't that just the yellow brick road continued? Right, yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah, it looks like a roller coaster track, but I yeah, think it's and, supposed and to be it, the yellow brick road. Right, but it, from it, in the skyline distance, it looks like it's just a big roller coaster going yeah. around the city. And in the next shot, the brick road is now continuing onto the track of the roller coaster, and they're actually walking on the track of a real roller coaster. This was shot on a section of a track from the Coney Island roller coaster, the Cyclone, and they hear someone calling for help off the side of the coaster, and eventually find a tin man under the statue of an enormous woman. They have to push the statue off of him to rescue the man. Even freed, he's unable to move, and they apologize if they're hurting him by bending his legs. I'm so sorry. No apology necessary. I told you nothing hurts me. I have no feelings. <coughs> the genius who created me only took care of my dashing good looks, my razor sharp wit, and my irresistible attraction to the wrong women. <coughs> what he forgot to add was a heart. Presumably, this enormous statue of a woman represents an example of the wrong women. Dorothy checks a compartment in his chest to verify the absence of a heart. 
Apparently this woman was his fourth wife, and once Dorothy gets him moving again, the Tin Man sings a song about his desire for a heart. At the end of the song, the Tin Man is moved to tears, which pour from his eyes in a steady stream. Dorothy and Scarecrow invite him on their journey to the wizard in search of a heart. First, they'll have to oil him because his tears have rusted his mechanisms in place. He sings a song about needing oil to lubricate, and it seems like he's actually singing about alcohol. Start some oil to me. Let it trickle down my spine. If you don't have STP, Crisco will do just fine. The Tin Man does some impressive tap dancing past an entire row of animatronic musicians that spring to life. I love the way he's able to dance in this costume, though, and the way that yeah. things slide up and down his mm. arms as he moves, and it doesn't feel like things are, like, creasing in, a, in an artificial way. It feels like he's actually made out of a pile of paint buckets and stuff. I like the backup singers in this segment. Yes. There's a couple of, I think they're, like, wooden mermaids, like, carved into the wall, but yep. the, the faces are, are real women that are singing along. Yeah, that, and one of them looks a lot like Janelle Monae every time they cut to it i was just like man that, that looks exactly like her face uh what i really like is that that even though she's in quote-unquote oz she's going to all these places in new york city that she knows yeah exist but she's never seen yeah and they said she's never been south of 125th street so she doesn't go into the city hey what country are you from Ethiopia. what part 125th street <laughs> They ease back on down the yellow brick road to 5th Street and the New York Public Library from the opening shot of Ghostbusters, or at least a map painting of it, with one important change. The familiar lion statue out front now has creepy googly eyes that follow our protagonists as they pass the building. Signs in front of the museum say, don't ease. <laughs> Get it? Because they've been <laughs> easing this whole time. That beast! He's checking us out! Oh. <sighs> It's just a statue made of stone, see? As they inspect the statue up close, a thunderous roar can be heard within, and Ted Ross, as the cowardly lion, tears open the statue from inside. He sings a song about being a mean old lion. Say what you wanna, but I'm here to stay cause I'm a mean old lion. <laughs> you can go where you're gonna, but don't get in my way. I'm a mean old lion. Toto is unfazed by the song and nips at the lion's paws, causing him to collapse in tears, and they're all surprised to learn he's such a coward. He tells them he was exiled from the jungle to the city for not having courage. I-O-B-K! I-O-B-K? Incapable of being king. The scarecrow shares a relevant quote. Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. W. Shakespeare. Of course, they invite the lion on their journey as well. Our five adventurers dance down the sidewalk beside the yellow brick road past enormous piles of garbage as a reference to New York's famous garbage strikes of the time. Do you guys recall the last time that we saw garbage piled this high in a movie? Oh, yeah. Um, the out-of-towners? Out-of-towners. Oh, I was going to say uh, Escape from New York. <laughs> well, that too, probably. Oh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe there was some garbage there too. But I just remember Sandy Dennis being so depressed by it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, that was the last time it was specific to the, the garbage same strike. garbage yeah, yeah, yeah. strike. Uh, Escape from New York is just, that's future garbage strikes. <laughs> yeah. They follow Toto down to a subway station. This was shot in the actual Hoyt Schirmerhorn subway station that Michael Jackson would later reuse in his Bad Music video. 
Ah. And later still, it was reused by Weird Al Yankovic yeah. for his fat music video <laughs> because Michael Jackson told him exactly where to shoot the video for the most accurate parody. I love that. I love that everybody was just nice to Weird Al and says, yeah, do, yeah. do your thing. Um, I think the interesting thing about a lot of these locations is almost how empty they all feel. Um it, it, it feels pretty cheap and, you know, like, I guess maybe that's Sidney Lumet staying on a budget, but, um, I mean, 24 million is, it's nothing not, to it's not at. that it's cheap. a lot of money, but I guess there's a lot, there is a lot of locations, but most of them feel pretty raw, like exactly mm. how they found them. Sands yeah. a couple of things like gluing some bricks to the floor. Oh my God, though. There's such cool stuff in this yeah. subway platform, but also I guess having to shut down an entire subway platform to film. for however long. Yeah. yeah. Th- and there's more expensive locations than this even yeah. like the flushing one. Was Flushing Meadows was obviously easy because it's empty most of the time anyway. Yeah. But there are some locations we'll get to later that were a big problem that they needed huge permission slips to sign off mm. on. Because I imagine, um, you know, for sound, they probably had to do a lot of the sound in post for this whole sequence. Right, Because yeah. they're not going to stop the subway cars from I feel like through. for a musical, though, you're not even going to record anything on set anyway. Well, that's probably true, yeah. The Lion reveals here that his name is actually Fleetwood Coop DeVille. Suddenly, a man comes down the steps behind them with a tray full of knickknacks to sell, and his face is like a fur triangle, and he's fucking scary I don't, shit. Yeah. I do not understand what this... I mean, maybe it's a reference to stuff in the books. I never read oh, the books. Oh, it's like one of those guys that's selling, like, the fake Oakleys and, like, No, I mean, I, I, mean, I guess I stuff. get that. Like, he's just, like... A peddler? Yeah. A, yeah, a peddler on the street, but I really just, like, don't understand what this character is. I don't understand what his... If he's... Because we saw him previously... He's like been watching them, but I don't know if he Does works he work for somebody for or evil. Yeah, but he's terrifying. Also, the thing that he unleashes on them. Is yeah, terrifying. I love this effect though because he has these two little puppets that look like like Chinese lanterns, like paper lanterns. Yeah, but they're kind of like bouncing, and they and they have legs to them that are touching the ground, so that when they bounce, they're extending. But we get this really cool switcheroo shot where. It looks like we're still watching the little puppets, but they start to look a little bit more lifelike, and you realize that the legs of the peddler are mm-hmm. now like a nine-foot-tall statue, and it's actually full-size people in these things that we thought we yeah. saw bouncing next to his legs. I didn't notice it on my first or my second pass, but the third time I was watching the movie, I was like, oh, they swapped out the guy that's puppeteering these things, and now these are full-size characters oh. in costume. Well, because I knew at some point we got to full-size characters because they're literally chasing them, and right. they're, they're as tall as humans are, but I thought that we switched out with like larger and larger puppets for each cut, Yeah. but you're telling me they just made fake legs? They made fake yeah. legs, <laughs> and, and I didn't even notice it because it's such a good job that they did with yeah. it, but I also love the way these characters move, the way they take these big, like, exaggerated steps on the bounce of the f- the fabric mm-hmm. that the costume is yeah. made out of. It's just horrifying in the best way. And there, there's, you keep expecting that there's, like, rope above them that's going to be controlling them somehow, but they're just moving on their own, and it's really scary and hypnotizing the way mm-hmm. they move. The toys chase them to a locked gate, but somehow the lion got through first and he summons the courage to unlock the gate and free all of his friends. On the second floor of this subway station, they're chased by living trash cans. Do you guys recall the last time we saw someone chased by a living trash can? Um, Luigi's Mansion 3. <laughs> For the podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was in a nightmare sequence. 
nightmare sequence. And it was a trash can sliding through a hallway in a school. Yeah, I, I remember it. With a vice principal's head staring out the window. I don't remember it. <laughs> um, student bodies? Yeah, <laughs> student it's, bodies. It's like the only thing it could yeah. have been, yeah. The trash cans try to eat Sierkura's arms, but the lion rips the trash cans apart. Wires descend from a fire alarm and attach themselves to the Tin Man's face to zap him. But again, the lion comes to the rescue. Dorothy is still running, but comes to a section of the station that appears empty. She stops for a moment to catch her breath, when suddenly the columns break loose from the ceiling and start marching toward her. I love this effect it's yeah. so Amazing. much. It's amazing. I love it so much, <laughs> especially because just for the added level of detail... They put real tiles on the seams of these mm -hmm. things so that when they break apart, you see ceramic tiles break off of the seams and hit the ground and yeah. shatter like yeah. real tiles would. Yeah. It looks so great. And you can't tell which ones are going to move until they start moving. Yeah. They match the existing columns so well. Yeah. These were these were fabulous. Yeah. I feel like the closest analog to these columns from the original film is the apple trees that suddenly come to life. It's kind of a similar thing to that. Dorothy is quickly surrounded by the columns. But the lion is here to save her again and forces his way between them to hold open a path for Dorothy to escape through. The group reunite and head upstairs to a back alley full of neon signs. It appears to be between two adult movie theaters. And the music playing sounds a lot like the bass line to the OJs for the love of money. The biggest sign in the back of the alley is for the Poppy Love Perfume Company, as a reference to the field of poppies that put everyone to sleep right before they reach the Emerald City. And when a gate closes our heroes into the alley, Scarecrow is the first to realize it's a setup. Dancers in flashy lingerie throw glitter in the air, and Dorothy is dazed by it. She and the lion are led to a painter scaffolding and raised to the Poppy Love Perfume billboard, where they climb through a pair of lips into a slide. Scarecrow and the Tin Man find them on the other side of the billboard. Even Toto is unconscious. Do you guys recall the last time we saw an unconscious dog? Oh, shoot. What was that? Um, the Omen 3? Does it happen in there? Doesn't doesn't he butcher like the dog and like drink some blood or something? <laughs> I don't remember that, but that's, <laughs> I won't say it didn't happen. Or maybe that went, or was that the... Um, not the Omen 3. Oh, you're... I'm yes. Thinking of, sorry, I'm thinking of the other one. The... Fi um, uh, you are. The other devil comes to life movie. Yeah, what, what was that one called? Do you she want me to tell you? Yeah. Fear No Evil? Fear No Evil. That's yes. the one I was thinking of. Sorry, Fear No not Evil, you are correct. Because even in the credits, it mentioned that there was like a veterinarian on set. Yeah, but, well, dog. I remember because I'm like, this looks like a live dog, but they like knocked it out and they really did. Yeah. But that's not the one you're talking about? No, that wasn't the one I had in mind, but you're totally right. That fits the Do You Remember the Last Time better than the one I mentioned because the one I'm thinking of is further back. Uh. Used cars. Remember they drug the dog to pretend that it had been run over? Mm. Uh, we joked about doggy downers because we were like, <laughs> you killed him. He really wanted you to buy this car. And the guy's like, okay, I'll buy it. I'll buy it. Yeah. So this whole section is like an analogy for like drugs and other temptations right that and i think down. it is in the original the 39 book. film too yeah and the yeah. book yeah i mean the opium i mean, I mean yeah, poppy's is an opium yeah. yeah yeah well i mean but like the 
this whole movie is taking those original concepts and applying them to life in the right. inner city and, yes. and stuff. So, like, I don't feel like this is the original Wizard of Oz was really talking about that. Right, but this is about, like, sex and drugs, yeah. basically, a combination of the two. I, I would say that the 39 film wasn't so much talking about drugs, but the book was. definitely yeah. was talking about opium. Yeah. yeah. The Tin Man cries over his sleeping friends and his gushing tears wake the lion. He sprays more tears on Dorothy and Toto to wake them up too. The lion recites a soliloquy about his struggles with cowardice and tries to punctuate the speech by committing suicide by jumping off the building, but his friends stop him. Dorothy sings the lion a song to cheer him up. There is a place we'll go where there is mostly quiet. But uh, this is another example, too, of where, like you're saying, he punct- we punctuate all along where the Tin Man, his his emotions is what saves them, that he's right. upset yeah. and sad, like, and that's what revives them. And obviously them. in the last scene, the lion's bravery is what saved them all. Yeah. And, and here also, as part of it, it was the Scarecrow saving them because he's the one who realized right away that it was a trap. So that he and the Tin Man didn't get yeah. knocked out. At the end of the song, night turns today and an enormous apple rises from the horizon into the sky. I guess as a reference to the big apple, but it's never like vocalized. At first I was like, what the hell? Why is there an apple in the sky? I don't get it. They dance over yellow bricks across the Brooklyn Bridge to a giant vault door guarding the Wiz. It seems like they aren't going to let them in, but a guard notices Dorothy's slippers without mentioning them and immediately opens the door. Inside the vault is mostly green crystals set up in the Austin J. Tobin Plaza between the twin towers of the World Trade Center. Filming here was cut short due to wind and technical issues, but the Port Authority would not extend their permit to the location. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a home decorated mostly with crystals? Uh, Superman 2? That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. All the Aussies are dressed in green and lit with green lights. They sing a song about how important the color is to them and how red is the worst color. Dorothy is moved to dancing by the music. Oz sends down a memo to his people announcing an official color change for their society. I thought it over and green is dead. Till I change my mind, the color's red. The song starts over with new costumes and lighting, but now complementary to the color red. Everyone trades their emeralds for rubies. There, there's a there's a shot whenever the wizard speaks, and it sh- it it pans up into the sky of like the tall skyscrapers, and there's like a giant megaphone that's rotating. Yeah, and there's like a structure between the two twin yeah. towers. I couldn't tell how that megaphone was made. It looks like it's animated. Interesting, and I and I, I, I it, it only it's it's on screen for such a short time that you can't see how how fast it's rotating, but it's moving, and I was like, that's not real, but it's too it's got to be too early for CG. Yeah, but it it has that real kind of weird early Tron CG look to it. Interesting, I, I didn't um, even notice that, but I'd, I'd have to look for it again. I, I'm sure it's just drawn hand drawn animation, just really well done. Yeah, it's just like the way it's rotating; it looks really bizarre. That's awesome. Another communique rings out from Oz above through an enormous bejeweled traffic light, and the color changes to gold. I really like the combination of the original film's primary colors into a traffic light, even though red doesn't actually play a part in this version of the story. 
because you have the green for Emerald City, the red for the ruby slippers, and the gold for the yellow brick road. But there's no ruby slippers here, so mm. yeah. red doesn't correlate to anything. For the gold set, we get a quick shot of Quincy Jones seated at an enormous gold piano with dancers on top. There's an enormous number of costumes yeah. between yes. these three different color And they're all sequences. like famous designers designed every single one of these costumes. Yeah, I'm like, this is where your budget went, yeah. man. And, and and like the whole stage is like on different levels of different tiers of rotating like wheels. Yeah. So like people are like moving in different directions or sometimes they're walking in place because they're moving at the same direction at the... the yeah, it, it's just so much going on yep and, and there's these great little like two-legged cameras walking around yeah. and they look so fun yeah <laughs> i i want i kind of want to like see something like that at that, that seemed to me like something you would see in toontown yeah mm-hmm. absolutely. would just be like this walking camera walking around and they they all try to pose for like a, a po- photo and it just turns away and walks yeah. away from them is toontown gone now uh yeah completely gone i i, I don't know if they're redoing it or if it's being absorbed but yeah, it's, by Galaxy's it's, Edge is is expanding. Um, I mean, because they they didn't keep up with it. <sighs> That's such a bummer. That was still my favorite part of the park. I know yeah. you didn't care about Toontown. I didn't care about Toontown. Oh, and Toontown, I, and Toontown I had, was my favorite as well. And I had my favorite <laughs> Facebook photo when we were all at Disneyland together. And I caught a photo of you yawning in Toontown. Yeah, I posted like, it all. Perfect. On. Patrick's <laughs> bored. <laughs> Oh man, the gadget go coaster though is like one of the best in that whole section. Yeah, but not for an adult because it's like, oh, this is for children, and I don't fit in this ride. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it is. It of, is a little small. I'm kind of scared to be in this ride. But I love that it's Mickey's neighborhood, and that the kids can go visit all the characters and I stuff. I like all the hidden stuff in the walls. Yeah. You could ring the doorbells, and things yeah. break, and you could pull on the bars, and they pull open, and but they didn't. Boat. But they didn't keep up with it, so all the paint was all peeling from yeah. the heat and. That's too bad. The song changes one last time, as do the lighting and costumes, so now everything's gold again. And the final announcement from the Great and Powerful Oz is not another color change, but a request for his people to send up the one with the silver slippers to see him. The guards at the tower doors do not allow Dorothy's friend's passage. She asks to speak directly with the Wiz, and a microphone named Mike walks out. (laughs) Also, the two legs, yeah, like with the two little legs to get out underneath a giant microphone head. So great. She requests permission for her friends to enter, but the Wiz refuses, so she says, I'm not coming either. Eventually, the Wiz agrees to have everyone join her. At the top of the tower, they exit an elevator to find an enormous chrome Richard Pryor head breathing fire at them. The enormous prop also apparently shot lasers, but they were operated carelessly on set, and Diana Ross was very nearly blinded by a misfiring. What? Jeez. He asks what they want, and Dorothy gets her friends to all request their gifts. And what do you want, you all the stuffed animal cracker? Get the hell out of here! He wants some courage, sir! The Wiz asks how they intend to pay for these gifts. What's in it for me? We'd be very grateful. <laughs> yuck, 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 yuck. <laughs> he suggests that she hand over the silver slippers in exchange for these gifts, but she refuses, which is weird because she just got these shoes for free earlier today, and you'd think she'd want to see Auntie M more than she would care about these ugly slippers. She says she was warned not to take the shoes off until she gets home, but it seems like the Wiz is in a position to send her immediately there upon payment. He tells her that if she kills the Wicked Witch of the West, Eveline, that he will grant their wishes. Dorothy doesn't think they're up to the task, and as they walk slowly out of the building, we see Richard Pryor's head pop up in one of the eye holes of the giant metal mask. 
instant. <laughs> I don't know how to phrase this. I want to do I remember the last time. Do you remember the last time we saw a person fit in an entire human head? No. Scanners. Oh. Remember that guy had a giant head in his living room and they sat in it and talked to each other while people snuck up on the building with shotguns? Yeah, I was trying to think of, uh, do you recall the last time Richard Pryor masqueraded as an omniscient uh, being? (laughs) Would that be, why do I always forget the name of this stupid movie? Yeah, I always remember the, give me that old time religion. Yeah, the other name for it. In God We Trust. In God We Trust. Yeah. Where he plays God. Yeah. We dissolve to the Emerald City Motel where Dorothy and her friends are staying for the night. It looks like a really fancy place, though. The rooms are huge. Dorothy's friends seem just as disinterested in killing Eveline as she is. Instead, they propose staying here in the Emerald City for keeps. Dorothy says she's going to look for Eveline right now, and her friends agree to join her. She asks the Emerald City guards which way to find her, and she's pointed into a manhole cover toward a smoky sewer system. Underground, they find Eveline's sweatshop. We see long tables with teams sewing things for the Wicked Witch of the West. She sings a song as she marches up and down the factory line. When I wake up in the afternoon, which it pleases me to do, don't nobody bring me no bad news. Cause I wake up already the negatives and I'm buying up my views. So don't nobody bring me no bad news. At the end of the song, she whips several employees on the way back to her throne. She summons the Flying Monkeys against the protestations of her workers. Turns out, Flying Monkeys is the name of a motorcycle gang. Their faces have this really terrific design. They're basically giant beards with huge lips and goggles. But I love the, the look of these faces when they're talking. She describes Dorothy and her friends to the leader of the gang and asks for them to be brought here. The way their motorcycles are designed, though, it looks like a person holding a headlight and balancing their feet on the front wheel of the bike. I really like it. They also look kind of inflated. I can't tell if they're like balloon bikes or not. The flying monkeys leave to collect Dorothy and friends. We cut to our heroes at Shea Stadium, running around trying to evade capture by the flying monkeys, eventually hiding together in a trash can. The team are quickly spotted together and brought before the Wicked Witch, who blames them for her sister's death. Now it is Eveline's turn to demand possession of her sister's slippers. But again, Dorothy refuses, even though this woman is, for all intents and purposes, the rightful owner of her deceased (laughs) sister's possessions. When Eveline tries to take the slippers off her feet, her fingers bend around backwards. Yeah. Really disturbing looking. She orders the scarecrow cut in half as revenge, but he assures Dorothy that it doesn't hurt. Next, she orders the tin man ironed flat, and he too assures her it is painless. Another team of workers lift the cowardly lion off the ground by his tail, and I wish he at least was like, this hurts a lot. (laughs) I have nerve endings, unlike those other guys. But he tells her not to give up the shoes. Next, Eveline fires up a furnace and threatens to throw in Toto, and Toto's like, it's fine. (laughs) No, Toto doesn't say anything because Toto's a dog, and Dorothy finally gives up. (laughs) Don't worry, Dorothy, you can burn me. No, don't do it. (laughs) She's about to take the shoes off when Scarecrow gestures to a fire alarm on the wall, and when Dorothy pulls the handle, water pours from the ceiling and puts out the furnace fire, and the evil witch also admits to being allergic to water and slowly shrinks as she falls back into her throne. Why did she put fire suppression systems in her place? Yeah. Compliance? Should powder. Come on. <laughs> yeah, right. Or halon? Yeah. Stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sweatshop. She's not, like, up on OSHA standards. The back of the throne falls forward to close the lid like a toilet. 
Dorothy helps the lion down and then instructs Eveline's workers on repairing the scarecrow and Tin Man. It's like, yeah, we know how to do it. We just cut them in half. We'll fix it for you. They all sing a song in celebration. We finally get a brief glimpse here of Michael Jackson dancing at full strength, which is always a sight to behold. I wish he did more of this. See, and this is the song that I most recognized from the oh, soundtrack. Okay. Like I, a I, brand new day. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've never seen this movie before, so a lot of the music was all new to me because I wasn't yeah. familiar with the Broadway play either. Um, Ease on down the road, I knew of, um, but this song I feel like I've heard more often, and I was like, oh, I had no idea that this was even from this movie because I know I think this is the song that was written by Luther Vandross, and I don't oh, know okay. if it was written because he for... sings the first line of it yeah but i feel like i don't know I, I i had a feeling this song may have been more famous oh okay at the end of the song all the factory workers unzip the skins of their characters and reveal normal looking humans in underwear underneath i mean i think this is another case where like these costumes are, are kind of stereotypical um you know black imagery and sure and they're you know kind of shedding those and and coming out as normal totally people. normal people yeah <laughs> But this also is like weirdly, I don't want to say sexual, but oh, absolutely, yeah. Like it was like it was like okay, well, we just we just got interesting here all of a sudden. Yeah. As the uniforms hit the floor, they erupt in flames like flash paper. The naked workers dance to the second half of the same brand new day song. Dorothy and her friends catch rides with the flying monkeys back to Oz to see the Wiz again. Cheetah, the leader of the gang, drops them off at the Wiz's back door as a favor. No one answers their knocking, but they realize it's unlocked and head inside. They find the giant chrome head face down on the floor in an empty room. Across the room, there's a bed and a table, and someone seems to be hiding under a blanket on the bed. Dorothy crosses the room and whips the blanket off to find the Wiz, a simple human played by Richard Pryor. Phony! You're, you're nothing but a phony! I'm out! The Wiz is out! He's not here! The Wiz is very apologetic for what he's done, and Dorothy's friends are very angry with him. Even the lion, who basically pulled the same scam earlier by pretending to be scary and intimidating when he's actually a coward. The Wiz is quick to admit that he's a charlatan from Atlantic City with no magic powers. I'm just a second-rate politician from District 7. Public office is the last refuge of the incompetent! Penrose! And when his campaign for city dog catcher didn't go well, he tried a publicity stunt with a hot air balloon and wound up here. He tells him his campaign slogan was, Vote for Smith, your best bet to catch that pet. Do you guys recall the next time that Richard Pryor will have a memorable campaign slogan? Uh, I'm going to say Brewster's Millions? That's right. And what was it? None of the above. That's right. The Wiz admits that the only reason that he had them kill Eveline is because he was worried that she would take over his position when she learned he had no powers. He begs them to stay and keep him company. So he literally just had them murder a person. And yeah. they did. And I would be scared of these people too. Like, yeah. it's like, I told them to murder a person and they straight up did, and now I can't give them what they want. Yeah. They're probably going to murder me next. Yeah, and they should. <laughs> it dawns on Dorothy's friends now that they won't get the gifts he promised them. She points out how smart the Scarecrow already is, how loving the Tin Man is, and how brave the Lion has proven himself to be. She sings a song imploring her friends to believe in themselves. If you believe Within your heart, you'll know. Dorothy notices snow falling and looks through it to find Glinda the Good Witch floating in the sky again with her constellation of babies. She asks for a way to get home, and the witch informs her that she can simply tap her shoes together and wish herself home. Glinda sings a song, and Dorothy seems enraptured by it. Do you guys recall the last time we heard Lena Horne singing? 
Hmm. This is the one that I mentioned earlier. The previous Lena Horn mention. Yeah. You guys didn't actually hear it. I heard it and I told you about it. <laughs> I don't, I don't the know. Oscar special. Oh. Because she sings a song in one of the montages from the Oscar special. Specifically the titular song from Stormy Weather. Don't know why there's no sun up in the sky. Stormy weather. She tells Dorothy to click her heels three times and think of where she wants to be and promises she'll show up there. You mean I could have gone home by clicking my heels three times? Uh-huh. Dorothy tells the Wiz that if he never lets anyone see the real him, that he'll never connect with real people. Dorothy says goodbye to her new friends and sings a song of home to picture it in her mind. She taps her heels together three times and appears back in the street outside her doorstep. Not huddled in the snow having a fever dream or anything, just standing there. Yeah. So it's never implied that this is a dream like mm-hmm. it is in the other versions yeah. of the story. Well, and, and none of these characters were characters in her From real, her real life. life. Yeah, it would have made sense if you'd had Nipsey Russell and Michael Jackson at that dinner party. But I guess that's not stuff from the book. Right. That, that, that makes, makes sense. Yeah. She walks inside and we dip to black before a still of Dorothy and the Scarecrow crossing the yellow brick bridge toward the roller coaster town and Ease On Down the Road plays again under the credits. And that's the end of The Wiz. So this was great. I really liked the music. By the time I was watching it the third time, I had favorite songs where I was like, oh, I can't wait for this song to come up. Mm. And, and uh, the it grows on you real quick. I really like a lot of the music. The And even just the, the score in the background is really great. It's all Quincy Jones' work. It's a little long, but I find that that's the case with almost all musicals that I watch is that they're all just a little long. But you know what's weird is... Um, Sometimes this happens when you're driving somewhere and you and you don't have landmarks to look for. The drive feels longer. Mm. But because I know the story of The Wizard of Oz so well and it's broken into such clear chapters, I feel like it doesn't drag for me watching it. it, it, it does. You're right. It doesn't need to be over two hours long. Yeah. There's probably a couple songs you could have cut. Nipsey Russell didn't need to do two songs in a row when they meet the Tin Man. Well, And, and then... Like the the scene in green and then dead in red, red like I was like okay this is this is basically all the same stuff yeah the, just, green should have been much shorter because yeah. green goes on for like ten minutes and then red is like fifteen seconds and it's like okay we got we got the gist of it very quickly we didn't need to do all of that but I also understand the temptation because it's like this was so expensive and we shot it at the fucking World Trade Center yeah <laughs> like that's hard to do so we're gonna use as much of this as we can. And the only reason the red version was shorter is because that's where they had problems with the lighting and stuff where they were like, oh, we can't we can't fix this. We need to come back tomorrow. And the city was like, no, you can't come back tomorrow. So get everything you need tonight and go home. But yeah, I think uh, Ted Ross is great as the lion. I think Nipsey Russell is really fun as the Tin Man. Michael Jackson doesn't get to do as much dancing as I would have liked to see. Yeah. But I do like that he's decided on the way that this scarecrow will walk and he walks that way for the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's very committed to the bonelessness of yeah. the character. But he does one dance in the sweatshop that I think looks great and I'm like, oh, yeah. this is like classic Michael Jackson dancing. I want to see more of this mm-hmm. like in every scene where they dance. But, uh, and obviously his singing is great. I can't believe he really only has one song that he gets to sing by himself. Yeah, But obviously that's why they resurrected it because they were like, we can't have Michael Jackson in this movie and not give him a solo song. Like, figure out something for him to do because he's Michael Jackson. So, And I really like the Miss One character and how she speaks in all the number lingo. She's like, oh, we had to 86 that guy. Let me get my 2020s on him. Like, everything she says is numerical. 
I had never seen it before. Um, I'm glad I've seen it. It's, I think it's it's worth seeing for everybody at least once. Yeah. Um, I think that it does. I agree that it feels long. Um, but again, that might just be my not being familiar with it. There's a lot of songs in here. There is. And so when you're not familiar with a song, it's probably going to feel longer. Yeah. But I, I do feel like Ditch Diana Ross gets get a kid in there because Dorothy's a kid. And yeah. I think that's important to the story that she's a child and that she feels lost in this city or that she's in this topsy-turvy world for the first time. Like, you can't just be like, well, this is like an adult who's a kid who's never been anywhere. And it's like, no, the, it's a kid for a reason. It's not a kid at random. But I feel like more of the themes of the of the challenges that she faces in Oz are adult themes. Yeah. But I, I feel like, especially for the African-American community, that those themes are things that these kids get put in real world situations earlier than they should have to. Well, so you watched the Wiz, the one that the NBC put out. Right. The live they they show. did a live adaptation of it. The the like the little bits that I watch um while you were watching it, you know, I just saw parts of it, but did not feel like it had the same like themes or grittiness no, because or she, any of she that. She grows up on a farm in like it the was, midwest it honestly it, felt like they a took mix of the two yeah the, yeah they took the original story put an all-black cast in and called it the whiz right but it's not what this is the ending is even more anticlimactic because they're like they go in to talk to eveline and it never really looks like she's going to get captured by eveline she just turns around and picks up a bucket of water and throws it at her and that's the end and it's like that's the 39 ending that's not that's not the ending of the whiz and uh but I did like David Allen Greer as the Cowardly Lion. Uh, and I think Queen Latifah is great as the Wiz in that. Yeah. But the weird thing is that they they make her out to be, like, all-knowing still, even after, like, the ruse has been uncovered. Uh-huh. She's still like, oh, yeah, no, I knew all. And, and she's the one who goes to each member of the team and says, you've been smart the whole time. You've been brave the whole time. You've had a heart the whole oh, I time. Like that. Like, I like that it, revelation it works being better, Dorothy's. Yeah, yeah, it works better coming from Dorothy. And I think even in the 39 version, the wizard is the one who's telling people, yeah. you're smart, you're brave, yeah. you're you're caring. Well, I don't even think that in, in the 39, it's been, it's been a little while, but I don't even think that, that they, they do anything like that. He just gives them a thing to make them think that they have it. Right, yeah, like, it's like a placebo effect. Yeah, yeah here, here's, here's a degree. Oh, here's a heart. You can hear it ticking. Um, and, and the cowardly lion, like what's like, it's a metal. Yeah. Like, you know, it's just like, because it's inappropriate to give a character balls in the scene. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because obviously they're all supposed to be like human parts that you're getting. Right, right, right. Here's your brain. Here's your heart. Here's your balls. (laughs) Um, so what are we thinking? Uh, thumbs up or down? This is a big thumbs up for me, I think. Yeah. I'll give it a thumbs up. It's a thumbs up. Uh, I, I don't know if I would ever watch it again. I will for sure, actually. But um, but I'm glad that I saw it. Um, you know, like some of the songs were pretty memorable. Um, I just I just wanted a little bit more from Michael Jackson. I get that it was early, still kind of early in his career. Yeah. Um, and I definitely wanted more from Richard Pryor because I feel like he's he's a pretty big name to have had in this movie. But as we as you mentioned, like a lot of the times that we've got Richard Pryor in a movie, he's not. But it's weird because this much. is this is still earlier so yeah it's in the same like three or four year window then that he just wasn't 
very camera ready, I guess, mm. because and maybe for the same reason that he didn't end up getting to star in Blazing Saddles because he was an insurance risk at the mm. time and it was like you can write something and if we think it's funny we'll shoot it but you can't be on set because we can't afford to put you on set and so every time he ends up doing a single shoot day on these movies with the exception of bust and loose which was a starring vehicle for him mm-hmm. everything else we've covered has been a we're wrapped on richard Pryor like in a day or stir crazy where he was just missing for a huge portion of the movie yeah, yeah. but yeah it's it is unfortunate because he does have some incredible talents and we're not getting to see them very often because he's just not available. Our director here was Sidney Lumet. He directed 12 Angry Men, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, Network, Equus, This, Death Trap, and The Gloria remake. We've seen his work so far in Just Tell Me What You Want and Prince of the City. I think but it's a weird choice, honestly. It is for him, yeah. Because you're literally doing a you know historic thing where you're taking an all-black cast why would you have an old white dude be the director? Because it cost $24 million and Universal wasn't ready to give that money to a black director yet. Which is unfortunate because this whole movie is supposed to be speaking from the black experience. And yeah, Sidney Lumet's not the best person to ask for that. Yeah, But, you know, who else would they have gone with other than probably Sidney Poitier? I, I can't imagine another director yeah. that they would have given that much money to. It had to be a Sydney, I guess. <laughs> it's either Lumet or Potier. But uh, if if Potier says, no, I don't want to do that movie, then it has to be a white guy because there's no other working African-American director that the studio would be comfortable giving $24 million to, which yeah. is crazy, but... I just, yeah, and I, I mean, I guess it's a different, it's a slightly different landscape now where people are making more independent films, so there are more opportunities for you to find those people but you yeah. you know when you create a system that prevents you from finding somebody who's appropriate for the role what do you expect and also what studios tend to do now when they're like well we need someone who fits a certain mm-hmm. like culture for this to be allowed to direct this movie you in give the first them a place small movie first or you get someone who is fresh out of film school or has only done one like critically acclaimed indie darling and you just strong arm them the whole way through it. So you're like, the studio is directing this movie yeah. and you're just the name that we put on the poster. Well, because then you would look like at like exploitation films of the time. Like, you know, it's right. like, you could get Melvin Van Peebles, but, you know, is that the style, is, is that the name that you want? because he's known for this yeah like is that and also melvin van peebles is not gonna let you come in and give notes yeah (laughs) like he's that's not his thing he's he'd be much he'd much rather do a movie for a hundred thousand dollars and do everything he wanted to do in it the novel came from l frank Baum. obviously he gets a credit on nearly every wizard of oz adaptation the book adapted from the novel was written by William F. Brown, and his adaptation of Baum's original work was adapted into the successful Broadway play on the way to this less successful film. The writer here was Joel Schumacher. So far, we've seen his directorial debut three years later for The Incredible Shrinking Woman. He just passed away in June of 2020. He followed these credits by directing DC Cab, St. Elmo's Fire, The Lost Boys, but he's likely best known for his work on Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. He also directed Falling Down in 8mm. I mean, I feel like, again, I mean, this is this wouldn't even be the director that you're like handing this, the reins over to. You're writing about the black experience, and you're adapting this play and this or this musical and this novel. Like, wh- why not have a black writer? Yeah, it's weird choices all around. I'd say 
The music is from Charlie Smalls, who has mostly Wiz-related credits for his lyrics here. The cinematographer was Oswald Morris. He has DP credits dating back to the early 50s, Moby Dick, Guns of Navarone, Kubrick's Lolita, The Taming of the Shrew, Oliver, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Scrooge, Fiddler on the Roof, Sleuth, Man with the Golden Gun, and The Man Who Would Be King, and Equus for Sidney Lumet. After The Wiz, we've seen his work on Just Tell Me What You Want and The Great Muppet Caper, and next season we'll encounter his final credit, The Dark Crystal. Editor Dee Dee Allen previously cut The Hustler, Bonnie and Clyde, Little Big Man, Slaughterhouse-Five, Serpico, Night Moves, Dog Day Afternoon, and Slapshot. Later this season, she cuts Reds, and further down the line, Breakfast Club, Henry and June, The Addams Family, and Wonder Boys. Diana Ross was Dorothy. Performing with the Supremes in 1965, Ross had the pleasure of opening for the classic Dorothy, Judy Garland, at the Astrodome Theater in Houston. Prior to this, she was Billie Holiday in Patreon Poll Loser, Lady Sings the Blues, and she's best known as the lead singer of the Supremes and later for her successful solo career. Michael Jackson played the Scarecrow. This was his feature film debut, and later he stars as the titular Captain EO in Coppola's 3D short film experience for the Disney parks. He's also Michael in Moonwalker, and he voices Leon Kompowski on The Simpsons, though he was credited as John J. Smith. <laughs> they never used the real names, but you could tell it was them. Yeah. Nipsey Russell played the Tin Man. He later appears as Edwards in Wildcats. He's the only member of the major cast not best known for their singing, other than Richard Pryor, obviously. He was a comedian and a popular game show panelist of the time. Ted Ross played the Lion slash Fleetwood Coupe de Ville. We just saw him earlier this season as Bitterman in Arthur, a role he reprises in the sequel, and he's also Captain Reed in Police Academy. He also shows up as the limo bum in The Fisher King, possibly as an intentional Arthur reference. Mm. Mabel King played Eveline. She was Steve Martin's mother in The Jerk. We also saw her last season as Mabel in The Gong Show Movie, and she's Alfie Woodard's mother, credited as Grandma in Scrooged, who lets the kids dress up Calvin as a Christmas tree. She's possibly best known as Mabel Mama Thomas in 42 episodes of What's Happening. Teresa Merritt played Aunt M. She played Mama on another series, specifically That's My Mama. She was Peggy in Patreon Poll Loser, They Might Be Giants. She's in The Goodbye Girl, The Great Santini, All That Jazz. But to our millennial eyes, she is most recognizable as Billy Madison's housekeeper Juanita. Thelma Carpenter played Miss One. Later, she's Norma Williams in The Cotton Club. Lena Horne played Glinda the Good Witch. She actually performed in the original Cotton Club. As I mentioned before, she was Selena Rogers in Stormy Weather. She's in Broadway Rhythm, Zigfield Follies, but she was best known for her singing and civil rights activism. She was, at the time, the mother-in-law of director Sidney Lumet, and this would be her final feature film performance. Richard Pryor played The Wiz, but he's credited as Herman Smith? Yeah, um, he says that's what he says his name is. Interesting. He also starred in Lady Sings the Blues with Diana Ross. He wrote Blazing Saddles, which he would have starred in if he were insurable at the time. So far on the podcast, we've seen him in Holy Moses, In God We Trust, Stir Crazy, and his first post-accident film, Bustin' Loose. Set yourself on fire for No, ma'am, I'm sorry. He'll show up later in The Toy, Superman 3, Brewster's Millions, and more Gene Wilder team-ups. His last film was David Lynch's Lost Highway, but his last appearance was as a character on Norm Macdonald's sitcom, Norm, in 1999. Stanley Green played Uncle Henry. We've seen him so far in Just Tell Me What You Want and The Exterminator. Ronald Smokey Stevens played one of the Four Crows. He was heavy in Times Square last year. Johnny Brown is credited as Aunt M's Party. 
He was Nathan Bookman in 58 episodes of Good Times. Patty Austin played one of the Wiz singers from the Children's and Adults Choirs. She was a backup singer in One Trick Pony last year, and she's a celebrated R&B and jazz singer-songwriter and was actually booked on United 93 on September 11, 2001, but had to cancel her ticket when her mother suffered a stroke. Wow. Roberta Flack played the Wiz Singers Adult Choir. Her song, The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face, made an appearance in our Patreon review of Play Misty for me last year. She also shows up in Michael Jackson's Bad Music video. Robin Givens played another guest at Aunt Em's party. This was her first film. She played Jacqueline in Boomerang. She's Kimberly Johns in Blank Man. And very recently, she played Angela's mother in Kimmy. Sissy Houston was one of the Wiz Singers adult choir. This was her first film. She's the mother of Whitney Houston and the aunt of Dion and Dee Dee Warwick. She sang backup tracks for, among others, Jimi Hendrix, Van Morrison, Burt Bacharach, Don McLean, Linda Ronstadt, Carly Simon, David Bowie, Elvis Presley, Beyonce, and Aretha Franklin. We saw her last in our Minnesota review of Hoodlums. She's still around in her late 80s, sadly having outlived her daughter Whitney, who died at 48 in 2012, and her granddaughter Bobby Christina Brown at 22 three years later. Iman played Emerald City Citizen, uncredited. She's best known for her modeling work. And she's in Out of Africa, L.A. Story, Star Trek VI, Undiscovered Country. And she was married to David Bowie from 1992 mm-hmm. until his death in 2016. Martina Jones is credited as the Wiz Singers Children's Choir. She is the daughter of Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones played the Emerald City Gold Pianist. He's an infamous record producer. He worked on this movie, Semi Against His Will, as a favor to director Sidney Lumet, and wound up meeting Michael Jackson on the set to kick off a decades-long partnership creating some of the best music of all time. He is also the father of actress Rashida Jones. Ray Simpson played one of the Wiz Singer's children's choir. We saw him last in Can't Stop the Music as the policeman from The Village People. Luther Vandross is another of the Wiz Singer's adult choir. He doesn't have many acting credits, but he later shows up in an episode of Eureka's Castle and The Meteor Man, and as himself on Beverly Hills 90210. He's better known for his work as a singer-songwriter of songs like Here and now, I promise to love faithfully. Also, comedian Doug Benson was an extra in this film. He has said that this was his first feature film appearance, and he also worked with Michael Jackson again as a background dancer in Coppola's Captain EO. He was a background dancer in this and Captain EO. Doesn't look like a dancer, does he? Mm. No, but also I thought this was an all-black cast. Comedian Doug Benson said that this was his first feature film appearance. But I didn't see him in there. And from what I could tell, it was an all-black cast. So Maybe it's a joke? I don't know, but he's very serious when he talks about having been a background dancer in Captain EO. So maybe it's just a situation where someone got confused and heard that he was in Captain EO and said that he was in this and added him as an extra in this because they were like, oh, early Michael Jackson thing. But uh, yeah, I didn't see him there either. I think that's everything for The Wiz. Thanks again to Louis Letizia for their generous contribution to the show. If there's any title you'd like us to review, our top Patreon tier includes a custom review of any pre-1980s title. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year, and we can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing whatever you choose, but we leave you now with the trailer for The Wiz. In a different place, in a different time, different people He's gonna get me back home.
thank you. And good luck. Genius who created me only took care of my dashing good looks, my razor-sharp wit, and my irresistible attraction to the wrong women. What he forgot was a hunt. A lion without any courage. Oh! Can you help us, sir? What's in it for me? We'd be very grateful. <laughs> yuck, 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 yuck. Silver slippers.